Now, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read our scripture passage this morning. Our passage comes from John three sixteen to 21, and it'll be on the screen behind me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word, it's true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. Well, it's good to be worshiping with you all this morning. I'm feeling a little bit under the weather today, so I'm sorry I can't be as friendly as I would like to be with each of you. Trying to figure out how to share the love of Jesus with you without sharing the sickness of Colbert with you. That's a tough balance to make, but um, I'm really excited for this morning because it's a a really great passage that we get to study this morning together as a church family. So um, as we get going, one of the things I've noticed that um, happens with uh, Christmas songs is there seems to be this uh, assumption that receiving Jesus with joy is the inevitable response. Right? It's, it's almost as if people assume that when Jesus came as a baby, the weary world rejoicing and us all coming and adoring Jesus for who he is, that that's like the natural tendency of the human heart. Okay, um, but if that was the case, then why did people end up receiving Jesus the way that they did? If you think about Jesus' life, he spent most of his life in obscurity. Then he spent his ministry years as a homeless person wandering around Judea with uh, 12 smelly disciple dudes. And then he ended up dying on a Roman cross as a criminal, naked and friendless, uh, and completely rejected by the world. And so if receiving Jesus with joy, as all the Christmas songs seem to indicate, was the natural response of the human heart, then it seems like we would be wearing mangers around our necks as jewelries rather than crosses. And so why, why, why is that? Let's, let's, I want to spend some time this morning thinking about how is it that we receive Jesus and, and how would we have received Jesus? And I think an interesting question for us to all ask is, if you had lived in the first century, if you were a, a, a Jewish man or woman in the first century living in Israel, how would you have responded to the ministry of Jesus? Right? Because I think we all want to think, like pat ourselves on the back and been like, I would have been one of Jesus' followers. I would have totally been there. I would have been worshiping at his feet. I would have understood who he really is and his identity. But if you think about it, the the fact that the first century Jewish people did not respond that way makes me start to question whether or not I would have had the appropriate response to Jesus had I lived in the first century. The similar thing happens throughout human history, right? Like if if you had lived in 1840s South, how would you have responded to the issue of slavery? We all want to pat ourselves on the back and think, yeah, I, I would have opposed slavery. I would have been against that injustice. But, but the human heart seems to be pretty uh, evil at times and to go along with very evil plans. Same thing like 1930s Nazi Germany, right? I, I want to think that I would have been one of the people who opposed the Nazi regime and protected the Jewish people. But the human heart seems to drift towards evil in all kinds of very difficult ways. And so I, I think we, we have this inner question inside our hearts that says, if I was placed in one of those awful situations, would I have responded appropriately? 
appropriately? And, that, and that's a question that for most of us, we can't know because we won't encounter that p- situation you know, without a time machine or something like that. So then the question for us as Christians is, if we were in the first century, how would we actually have responded to Jesus? Would we have fallen at his feet and worshipped him and understood that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one of God who was sent to earth to redeem mankind from all their sins? Or would we have been one of those people that ended up rejecting Jesus and chanting for his crucifixion and thinking that he was another failed Messiah who didn't live up to his promises, right? So the good thing about this passage we have this morning is it actually is going to show us how we would have responded had we lived in the first century. I I think it's this amazing thing where, again, short of having a time machine, the passage that we have before us this morning is actually going to give us an indication of what is in our hearts and it will be an indication of how we would have responded to Jesus. So, so I'm going to say a word of prayer for us. I'm going to pray that the Sudafed does less talking and the Holy Spirit does more talking as we go through this. Uh, and let's, let's study God's word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and the fact that uh, you are a, a good and gracious God who has revealed himself through the word of God. I thank you that as, as, as followers of you, that we can come together on a Sunday morning, we can open these pages, and we can encounter your spirit in a real and fresh way. God, I thank you that, that your word has given us all we need for life and godliness, that it is sufficient for what our souls need and for what the questions are that we ask. And so uh, with the, the busyness of the world around us this Christmas season, with all the things that seem to crowd out in our hearts, to crowd out any space for you, I pray that you would sovereignly and supernaturally and graciously carve out a room in each of our hearts this morning so that we can encounter you in a very special way. I pray that we would experience your love, and I pray that as we, as we do that, that we would leave here this morning changed by your grace so that we can go love people who don't yet know you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if this is uh, your first week here, we're so glad that you're studying the Word of God with us this morning, that we get to gather as, as, as uh, people to, to learn more about Jesus and, and to w- what it means to be followers of him. For the four weeks of Advent leading up, to, leading up to Christmas, we've been going through John chapter 1, just the first 18 verses. And the reason we're doing that is because uh, with all the craziness of culture, with this idea of the spirit of Christmas pervasive so, uh, all the way around us, what we believe as followers of Christ is that we don't need the spirit of Christmas. We need the person of Christ. And, and we encounter the person of Christ when we study his word and his word transforms us. And so these first 18 verses of John really dive in deep into the, like the, the depths of who Jesus is. It shows us a picture of his character in a way that many other passages of scripture don't. It's really one of the richest, most robust theological passages we can study. So we're going we're gonna to continue to study this. We're going to take um, just four verses this morning. But I'm going to do the same thing that I've done every week as we study this. I'm going to read all 18 verses first before we begin the study, just to remind us that when we encounter God's word, that is the thing that needs to change us. You don't need to hear any cute anecdotes from me or thoughts from me. We need to encounter Jesus through the study of his word. So if you don't have a Bible on the table, there are Bibles for you. It's page 886. I'm going to begin in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. So the first week, amen. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the first week that we studied this, uh, the first five verses, we really dove into this idea of God, uh, Jesus being a, the eternally existent, com- uh, all-powerful creator of the universe. He's the fully uh, engaged in history. He's fully engaged in our lives as members of the, the world that he created. And then last week, we saw that, that John the Baptist, this forerunner of Jesus, was a witness to the light. He, he wasn't the light. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a huge celebrity in his day, but his mission, he knew, was to point people to Jesus. He said, I, I, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. That was the goal of what he was, uh, his whole life's mission was. And so if, if John was a witness, then that means our role as Christians is also to be a witness, to point people to the light of who Jesus is. And so this morning, now we're going to just pick it up in verses 9 through 13. So let's read verse 9 again. It says, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so, so John goes back to this idea of, he's, he's leaving John the Baptist behind. He's going back to the identity of Jesus and saying that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was the true light, and he was coming into the world. And so he, he's using this concept of light as the identity of Jesus again. And, and it's such a, a rich biblical theme, the idea of light. Uh, we, a lot of times when you read the Bible, we, we see the word glory, and we just think of glory as this like ethereal, religious word. We don't really know what it means, but this concept of glory is saying, if you were to somehow uh, bottle up the divine attributes of God, all of his beauty, his majesty, his, his, his wonderfulness, all, the, all the, the, the words that I can't even think of right now that describe how great and powerful God really is, if you were to, to concentrate that in one single place, what would happen? It would be this explosion of light and glory and, and all this, this uh, um, uh, shining forth of, of the purity and the goodness and the grace of God would, would, would come forth from that. That's why in the Old Testament, whenever God encounters someone, there's always these flashes of light, these pillars of fire. When the temple is filled with the presence of God, it's, it's smoke and fire and glory of God coming out. And what John is saying is that Jesus is the light. And so, so we, we get a glimpse of this a few chapters later in the Gospel of John when Jesus goes up onto the mountain of transfiguration. And there's this brief moment where Peter and James and John are with Jesus. And, and all of a sudden, it's like this veil that was covering the glory of Jesus, the light of Jesus, was lifted just for one minute. And Moses and Elijah came down, and the glory of Jesus shone out in this effervescent light that was blinding. It was so terrifying to Peter and James and John that they fell on their faces and they worshipped him. And, and what John is doing here is saying, that that light that was visible for just a brief second on the Mount of Transfiguration, that is the identity of who Jesus is. That, is. that is who Jesus is at his core. And so, But he clarifies saying that he's the true light. He's not a false light. He's not an imitation light. He's not a fake light. He is the true light. John is, is, is very explicit on the fact that there's pretenders out there. There's false messiahs. And so if you read through the New Testament, you see several different names, uh, Judas and Thutis, and then this Egyptian uh, uh, messiah claimant are just three examples. But, it, but in the first century, there was literally hundreds of people who showed up on the scene claiming to be the messiah. 
They said, I will lead Israel to this freedom. I will defeat the Roman Empire. I'm the Christ that the Old Testament prophesies. You need to follow me, and we will go defeat the Roman Empire together. And what John is doing here is saying that, no, Jesus is the true light. There, there is no competitors when it comes to the glory of who Jesus is. None of us have anything internal to us that would make glory and light burst forth from our fingertips like Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, but the problem with us humans is we're always looking for the light. We're tempted to go after false lights. We're, we're tempted to believe that this Thutis guy, this fake Messiah who showed up on the first century, we're tempted to put our hopes in those kinds of things instead of running to Jesus as the true light. And that same thing is true today, right? The reason, the reason politics is so tense and so divisive in our country is because we are looking for the light, but we are looking in the wrong places. The, the, the reason the consumerism at Christmas goes crazy and people spend so much money and go into so much debt is because we are looking for the light, but we are looking in the wrong places. The, the reason there is tension in our families and in our relationships is because we are looking for those things to fulfill us. We're looking for the light, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. And John is saying, hey guys, it's right here. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the one that you're longing for. Jesus is the one that if you come to him, you will see the true light. And that's the amazing thing about this. Uh, look at the nature of who Jesus is. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Okay, every other false pretender of the light, every other false messiah says there's the light and it's for this small little group of people. So, so if, if it's politics, the light is for that particular group of people that believe in that political savior. All right, if, if it's that new car, the light of the Mercedes with the bow on top, that's for that particular little group of people who can afford to have that kind of thing delivered to their house on Christmas. But when it talks about Jesus, it says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Yeah, this is what theologians call common grace and general revelation. It's the idea that, that God is so good that even when our rebellion and our sin, when we turn our backs on him, when we, when we live in complete animosity towards God, he is so good he can't help but bless his creation because of how good he is. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. There's not a single person on this entire world who has not in some way encountered the grace of God in a daily existence. Even Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, for God makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's grace and God's goodness is, is so rooted in his character that even though he, he, he judges sin, even though he judges those who will not come to him in repentance and faith, his goodness still flows forth onto everyone. And because of that, it says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this is the part that just should excite the heck out of all of us. God is so good and he's so loving that he comes for us in our sin. What, what does every other false messiah say? Hey, if you come to me, I'll give you something you need. But, but what, is, what does Jesus do? He says, you would never come to me on your own. That's why I'm leaving heaven and I am coming for you. And there's an awesome Tim Keller quote where he says, uh, every other religion in the world says, I will tell you how to find God. Jesus is the only one who says, I am God and I have come to find you. That is the most beautiful aspect of God's love for us is that it's a, it's a pursuing love. That, that pursuing love is the thing that defines his character. And that should excite the heck out of all of us, like I said. Remember, so Elf is one of the best Christmas movies ever, right? Remember how Buddy responds when Santa's coming? He's like, guys, 10 a.m. tomorrow, Santa's coming. And he like loses his mind. He's like, Santa's coming. Oh my gosh. I can't quite scream like I wanted to this morning with that line. But this idea of like, if Buddy can freak out because Santa is coming tomorrow at 10 a.m., 
then how in the world can we stay in our seats when we talk about the joy of Christmas because Jesus, the Savior of the world, has come for us. Again, that's the beauty thing about that is that, that he pursues us even in our sin. There, there was, the Missio Kids team was trying to uh, find a, a, a book to, to give to all the kids, uh, the families of children in our church, and there, there was this one devotional that they were looking at, but the refrain of it, the devotional, they decided not to do it because this is how they would, would say this, this piece. God couldn't remain Sin drove him away, so Elijah began to pray, would you come back to stay? And that's this refrain in this devotion they decided not to do. And I'm so glad they didn't do that one, because if you think about those words, God couldn't remain, sin drove him away, so then Elijah was praying, oh, please come back to stay. That line, I'm not trying to pick on whoever wrote that, but that line gets it 100% backwards. That is not the character of God. God is not the one who's like, ew, gross, I'm getting away from you. And we're on our knees saying, oh, no, please come back to us, God. We're the ones running the opposite direction. And he is the one in his sovereign pursuing love who comes after us because that's how good Jesus is. And so when we ask ourselves this question, how would we have responded to Jesus in the first century? It seems like an easy answer, right? You're like, Jesus seems great. <laughs> He's awesome. Of course, we would have responded in faith and obedience and worship and love and all of those things. Why did anyone not do that? Well, let's look and see in the next few verses, verses 10 and 11. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so he, he gives us two different categories. There's the Jewish people, his own people, and there's the world. That'd be the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who didn't know that there was a Messiah coming. So there's two categories, Jewish and non-Jewish, but there's only one response. Complete and total rejection of who Jesus is. They, they did not come to him in faith as they should have. And so, so for one sense, on the world side, they didn't know there was a Messiah, they had no idea that he was coming. And because of that, because their minds were dark and they weren't aware that there was a Savior coming, they weren't aware they needed a Savior. And because of that, they did not know that Jesus was who he said he was. On the other side, the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, the people who had hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecies saying the Savior will come, the snake crusher will come, the descendant of David will come, the, the new and better Moses will come. Those own people of Jesus who read those prophecies did not receive Jesus. And, and here's what the problem is. The Jewish people in the first century, the Gentiles in the first century, you and I in the 21st century, there is nothing inherently right enough in us to make us think that we would choose Jesus if we had the chance on our own. There is nothing in us that is good enough to make us think that we would do that. And so in the one sense, there's the Gentiles people, the people who, who should uh, have known God, but they didn't worship Jesus when he came. Our minds are darkened by sin. We don't know what we don't know. And because of that, when we encounter Jesus in our own flesh, we would never choose to follow him. And there's something so sad and heartbreaking about this, right? It says he, he created the world. He came into the world that he created and the world did not know its own creator. That, that, that's a heartbreaking statement. I, I have a friend who... Um, his dad was an alcoholic and abusive and he, he, uh, they had left, his, his, he and his brother and mom left when they were about 10 years old. And then he ran into his dad 20 some years later on the sidewalk. He walked right past him and he had to introduce himself to his dad because his dad didn't recognize him. And, and you hear that and you're like, there is something tragically and horrifically wrong about the fact that that relationship wasn't what it should be. And that same type of thing on an infinitely grander scale is what's happening here. That the creator of the world came into the world and the world didn't know him. 
If we walked past the creator on the sidewalk, we would have kept going and not even know who it was that we were seeing. In the same way, it says that the Jews, uh, he came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. That, that, that concept of his own people is actually saying his own household. It'd be like if, if you came home from a long trip and your family said, we don't even really want you here anymore. Right? Like, I, we hear stories like that. That happens to people that get kicked out of their homes, and you say, there is something tragically and horrifically wrong if you're not welcomed into your own home. And that same concept, times infinity, is the exact thing that happened to Jesus in, the gent- uh, uh, in the, his own people when they rejected him. And, and the concept here is not that those people were so much dumber and more selfish than us. The concept is we are those people. There is nothing in us that would make us choose Jesus if we're left on our own. There's a book that came out a while ago called Ordinary Men, and it's about the Holocaust. And what the author is trying to show is that the tragedy of the Holocaust, he looks at the lives of the people who, who ran the gas chambers and who were, were soldiers in Hitler's army. And he's, the premise of the book is saying the true tragedy of the Holocaust is not how evil the Nazis were. The tragedy is how normal they were. They were just regular men and women who went along quietly with the most evil thing that's ever happened in our world. And so, so it's easy for us to pat ourselves on the back and be like, if we had been there, we would have done something differently. But the word of God confronts us and says, what makes you think there's anything different in you that you would have responded any differently? Right? There's a, a quote by Frederick Buechner that says, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. And that's what we're seeing right here. The gospel is bad news. All right, there is nothing in us that would have led us to choose Jesus. So, so here's the takeaway from these verses. You are too dumb and selfish and rebellious to think that you would ever choose Jesus. Okay, you are too dumb and rebellious and selfish to ever choose Jesus. So I'm going to pray Merry Christmas. We're going to go in peace at this point. But with that, like, I think that's the bad news of the gospel. Right? The gospel is bad news before it's good news. There is nothing in me that is good enough to make me think that I would ever choose Jesus on my own. But here's the, here's the pivot. Here's the thing. What if it's not about what's in us? What if instead it's about what's in him that makes all the difference? Let's look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Think about that. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. Like we should all spend hours this week meditating on this and, and praying through, what does this concept tell us about us? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And I love, I love every word in that. So, so but, right? That, that's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible, right? There's all these places in the Bible where it says, this is who you are. You're dead in your filth and your sin. If you look at Ephesians 2, we don't have time to study it really, really clearly. He says, you, you are a servant of Satan. You are following the enemy. You are loving every minute following Satan. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. In 1 Corinthians uh, 6, Paul says, he lists all of these sins, all these, these rebellious, horrific ways that we turn against God. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is always that pivot point when it comes to Jesus where he says, even though there's nothing in you that would ever lead you to choose me, but God does something. Okay? And so and that, and that invitation is open to all. It says, but to all who believed in his name. It's not about your religious heritage. It's not about how good of a person you are. Uh, that doesn't help you. That doesn't give you a head start. 
Uh, and at the same time, your bad works, all the evil you've done, all the things, the horrible things you've done with your life, that doesn't give you a handicap. Okay? It's to all who receive him, who believe in his name. And so to receive Jesus means to take hold of him. It's a relational word, and it's something that's saying those who receive him are the ones who believed in his name. To believe in his name means to say, I trust that his identity is who he says he is. When Jesus says he is God and he has come to save us, when you believe in his name, you say that all that scripture affirms about Jesus is what I am resting in for my hope. And then it says uh, he gave the right to become children of God. And I I love that. That that word gave is such a gospel-centered word. The word gave is such a, a gracious, kind word from God. He's not saying to all who earned the right to become children of God. He's not saying God relinquished the right, as if we have to pull salvation out of his fingertips. He's saying this is a free gift from God. He gave us salvation not because of what we have done, but because of how good he is. And that makes us children of God. We, we have been adopted into his family. And with that adoption, we have all the rights and privileges and benefits of a child of God himself. That's such an amazing concept that John, the author of this gospel, never got over it. Right, at the end of his life, in 1 John chapter 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Like as an old, decrepit, dying man, he's still saying, This is the most amazing thing you can think of. God has given us the right to be called children of God. Think about how much you must lo- God must love us to give us that right. So then it begs the question, how can we be in that category? How can verse 12 describe us? If there's nothing in us that would make us choose God, how can verse 12 be something about us? Because like we saw, it, it, the world didn't know him, so it's not about our smarts. It's not about our intellect. His own people didn't receive him. So it's not about our religious background or our heritage. How is it that we can have Jesus as our Savior? Look at verse 13. This is who became children of God. Those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who is that? Those who were born of God. Okay, those who received the gift of God. And here's why John, when he writes his gospel, uses the term birth so much. Because think about it. What role did you play in your own birth? Did you have a significant role in how that all process came about, right? No, like you have no bearing on that. It has nothing to do with you. And it is in completely an act of something outside of yourself. And he's saying, so if we're going to be the people who believe in God, who receive him or receive him and believe in his name, it has to be about the fact that we are born of God. And then then what he does, he's saying, so born of God is what we're after. And then he gives three things that are not factors. He said, these are three things that have no bearing whatsoever. Verse 13, he says, they were not born of blood. He's saying, your your ethnic heritage has nothing to do with whether you follow Jesus or not. Okay, there's a quote, I can't track down who said it, but it's this idea of um, God has no grandchildren, okay? Just because your parents follow Jesus does not mean that you are a member of his household, okay? God, you, God has children. He does not have grandchildren. We each need to come to him, and it doesn't matter our family's traditions. It doesn't matter the fact that your grandma prayed for you every day, and she loved you, and she gave you a Bible on your 10-year-old birthday, Right? What matters is, have you received Jesus? Have you believed in his name? It doesn't, your family's faith doesn't save you, but at the same time, your family's background doesn't damn you. 
Okay, so, so there's this idea out there that's a lot of atheists push that says, well, if, if you're born in America, you're more likely to be a Christian, and if you're born in Saudi Arabia, you're more likely to be a Muslim. Therefore, religion's all made up. And, and what John says, what Jesus says is, hey, being born in America with Christian parents doesn't mean you're a Christian. Birth does not give you a head start. And being born in Saudi Arabia doesn't give you a disadvantage either. It's to anyone who comes to him. So the fact that there are more Muslims in Saudi Arabia, that's just saying that we have a job left to do, that we haven't yet taken the gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay, the second thing he says, so it's, it doesn't matter your blood, it doesn't matter your background. Then he says, they were not born of the will of the flesh. Anytime he uses the will of the flesh, he's saying it doesn't depend on human efforts. Okay, you are not a member of God's household. You're not a child of God because you tried really hard to be here. It's not that, that you did a really good job cleaning yourself up. You're such a better person than your neighbors and all those people who stumble and fall. It has nothing to do with your own effort. Uh, Kevin pointed out to me last week, it's not what it says over the trash can over there. The, in the gym here, it says something about like, I need more effort, keep trying. So, so we have like this, this gym where we're like, it's all about the grace of God. And then you go to throw your coffee away and it says, keep up the effort. You're not doing good enough quite yet. <laughs> so we're not trying to, that's something the school puts up. That's not what our doing. <laughs> So it doesn't depend on your own effort. The last thing he says is it's not a decision of the will of man. And, and so what he's saying is it, it, no other person can force salvation on you. It's not because your spouse drags you to church. It's not because your parents drag you to church. The only thing that matters whether you have followed Christ or not is have you been born of God? And so what we're seeing here is, is salvation, receiving Jesus, has nothing to do with what's in us. It has everything to do with what is in him. And what is in him is what we saw in verse 9. It's the, the glory, the pursuing love, the grace, the kindness, the fact that he comes after us in the middle of our sin. And so, so in one sense, there's this theological debate that we just kind of dove off the diving board into right now. That's this idea of predestination, free will, because people on the, the Arminian free will side say, hey, it says to all who receive him, and that word receive does, it's something that, it, that we are the subject of that. Like it means for us to take hold of. And so they say, hey, there's free will. Then on the other side is this Calvinist predestination side that says, yeah, but you didn't do anything with your birth. It's a matter of fact that you were born of God. God is the one who gave it to us. It has nothing to do with us. And so, so ultimately, the Bible speaks to both of those. We, we at this church believe in what's called compatibilism, that God's sovereignty and our human free will are compatible. They work together. And we see that here. But the most important thing that we see is it's not about the theological debate. It's not about, like, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? The question for all of us to leave here this morning is saying, have you believed in Jesus' name or not? Have you received him or not? And, and yeah, leave the workings of how predestination and free will work. That is something worth studying. It's worth pursuing. I think, like, uh, you have to land somewhere. So we want to land on the emphasizing the sovereignty and, and kindness of God. But at the end of the day, uh, it's not about your will of the flesh, you trying harder. It's not about your blood, your heritage, the fact that your parents were Christians. It's not about the will of man. No one else can force it on you. It's have you been born of God? Have you received and believed in his name? And so that's, that's the question of, the answer to the question, would you have accepted Jesus or not in the first century? And the answer is, have you accepted him or not in the 21st century? Have you been born of him here? And if you have, it means that he loves you. He came for you. He gave you new life. And when you receive him and believe in his name, you have eternal salvation in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this uh, passage and the fact that we get to study um, how kind you are. 
Lord, we confess that we are rebellious sinners. Uh, we look for light in all the wrong places, and we're always disappointed and, and leave feeling frustrated. So I ask that you would uh, be the one to stir in our hearts, that we would look to you alone this Christmas season for the light, that we would see that it's only in Jesus that our longings can be met. Uh, if we've come here, God, feeling like we're beat down and, and, and chewed up and spit out by the world, I pray that we're in your presence, that we would see your pursuing love, your kindness towards us, your mercy that's over all that you have made. And as we do that, I pray that we would, we would, re- we would receive you. I pray that we would believe in your name. I pray that we would find that new birth that comes from your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you're uh, new here, uh, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. The, the reason we sit at tables is so that after we study a passage, we can turn towards one another and we can process what God is doing in our lives. So I have some questions for us. Question one is, have you ever wondered if you would have chosen to follow Jesus if you've lived in the first century? What does this passage do to your opinion of yourself? And then secondly, someone at your table, read verse 12. What part of this is the most astonishing to you and why? And then lastly, if you have time to get to this one, verse 9 hints at the fact that people are always looking for light or people to look up to or worship. Where do you see this in our day, and why are we prone to fall to this temptation? So we'll do that for about 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship and communion. All right. We're going to transition to communion here. Uh, yeah, one of the, the many... Uh, Isaiah quotes in Matthew uh, falls in line with the light and the darkness. Um, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in that region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Uh, so there's a definite uh, correlation between darkness and death and light and life. And thank you, Gilbert, for the, the gospel message and uh, so, um, yeah, we, uh, as we go to communion, communion, here we do open communion, which is for those who have professed Christ. Uh, and for those who have not yet professed Christ as your Savior, this is not something for you to celebrate because we're celebrating our memory of what Jesus has done for us. But there is opportunity, as long as we have breath, there's opportunity to come to the light. Uh, God said, I live in a high and holy place and then the hearts of the contrite. So a good place to start is thinking how big and good God is and how much we need him. Uh, there's other ways to respond. We can give. Uh, you can give in the box in the corner or on our church app. We can pray. Uh, Jessica and I will be in the corner if you want to pray with us. Or you can pray at the table. Pray for Pray for somebody. Um, we're going to respond by singing here in a little bit. But uh, as we come to communion, remember, this is our time to remember what Jesus has done for us. He says, as he took the wine, he said, uh, this is my blood shed for you. And as he took the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So that's what this time is for. So uh, I'll pray. And then... Uh, as the music goes, the tables around the room, we can do the elements, and then I will sing after that. And uh, let me pray. Lord, uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. 
Thank you for this message that your light is for everyone. And uh, thank you for loving us. And uh, Lord, help us to honor you and to remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.